You're listening where the world comes to talk. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Real football fans don't turn off the television in the fourth quarter just because one team is winning by three touchdowns with only five minutes left. And real students of the Civil War don't stop paying attention in the spring of 1865 just because Lee is trapped around Richmond and Sherman is driving north through the Carolinas. In fact, Sherman's Carolinas campaign has been called the most difficult, longest, and most remarkable campaign of the war. The people who called it that, Mark A. Smith and Wade Sokolowski, are the authors of No Such Army Since the Days of Julius Caesar, and they're here to talk about that campaign with us on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today from the campus of East Carolina University, my office in the beautiful Brewster Building. Actually, the this is a building that the history department shares with several others, including the, at one time, the anthropology department. Today I took a class to visit the new anthropology lab over in the, the Flanagan building, recently restored, and they have fabulous quarters there. It's clean and bright and large and shiny, and as I trudged back to the slums of the history department in Brewster, I thought, uh, hmm, it's too late to get an anthropology degree. Yes, it is. So we'll stay with history and hope that someday this building can be uh, torn down and replaced with something more uh, acceptable. But in the meantime, we're here to talk about uh, the Civil War, not uh, on behalf of East Carolina University or speaking for them or anything like that, as always, but uh, on my own. And as always, also on my own, soliciting your always welcome donations to help Keep up the book fund here at Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, check the website, click on the donation button, and uh, send some non-tax-deductible money that uh, that I can use. Hey, thank you. Also, before we start, I uh, want to send our best wishes to Terry Johnston, until very recently the editor of North and South Magazine. If you are listening to this uh, program, you're aware of North and South Magazine by far the best of the 
the mass market Civil War publications uh, with the best articles, uh, often footnoted and referenced, so you can see what the author actually knows. Uh, the most interesting tone, interesting subjects, uh, highly recommended. And uh, as Terry moves on from being editor there, I'm sure he will find new and interesting things to do and wish him uh, great success in whatever he does next. Well, today we're going to discuss uh, Sherman's campaign in the Carolinas, in particular in North Carolina, and our guests are Mark S. Smith, I'm sorry, Mark A. Smith, and Wade Sokolowski. Uh, gentlemen, are you both there? Hello, Jerry. This is Wade. Hey, Wade. Hello, Jerry. This is Mark. Yes, we're here. Excellent. And, uh, Wade, am I saying your name correctly? Not, not bad for a first try, Jerry. Good job. Uh, uh, run it by me, if you would. Uh, Wade Sokolowski. Sokolowski, got it. I, I once had somebody mispronounce Prokopovich, and I've never gotten over it entirely. So uh, I know how that can be sometimes. Um, well, uh, tell me a little bit about what what brought each of you uh, to an interest in the Civil War to begin with. Uh, to take take turns, arm wrestle for it. Uh, whoever wants to go first. You go ahead, Wade. All right, Mark. Well, uh, you know, I, I'm I was born and raised down in uh, Beaufort, North Carolina. Um, close to Fort Macon, family ties to Fort Macon. So I've always had a uh, general interest in the Civil War um, coming from North Carolina. I, I would say my uh, the serious study of the war began uh, sometime during my military career. Um, I was stationed at Fort Bragg uh, in the mid-'90s. It was that time that I became interested in Aversboro and Bentonville due to the proximity of Fort Bragg. Um, it kind of grew from there, and I left Bragg and went out to Fort Leavenworth, where I had the uh, the great benefit of studying under uh, Dr. Glenn Robinson out of the Combat Studies Institute. Most folks I know him from the, uh, his work with Chickamauga. Um, that blossomed into a thesis that I did on uh, Sherman's logistics of his Carolinas campaign, and then uh, I started thinking about maybe writing a book on Aversboro and contacted uh, Mr. Walt Smith, who's done a lot down there at the Battlefield Commission, and Walt introduced me to Mark. And uh, since then, Mark and I have been working together on the project, and that's kind of how it happened, Jerry. Now, you, you said your uh, thesis was on Sherman's logistics in the campaign. Yes. And they say uh, amateurs talk tactics and strategy, professionals talk logistics. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It uh, it has a, has the means to uh, either make a campaign or break it very quickly. And uh, there's certainly some reference to that here in your book, uh, Mark. How about you? What's your uh, background? Well, I you know I kind of have to blame my dad for a part of all this mess. Uh, he uh, kind of got me addicted to this, taking me to a lot of the Civil War battlefields when I was really young, like Gettysburg and Vicksburg. And since then, I you know I always you know just couldn't stop reading about it and. Uh, I just happened to like Wade to be stationed down in uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and I was looking around for the local battlefields there, and I noticed this one that wasn't very publicized quite a bit and, and uh, uh, called Aversboro, and I went and started doing research on it and ran into Walt Smith, who was just newly starting up the uh, Aversboro Battlefield Commission, and this was about 93, 94, and uh, so he invited me to get involved with that group, and uh, and he uh, kind of introduced us, uh, Walt, Walt, uh, Wade and us, uh, together. 
So uh, at, at the time you found out about Aversboro, did not have much of a, a preservation uh, going on at that time? That's correct. The only thing that was really there was the uh, uh, Confederate Cemetery, and uh, it was being maintained by the UDC for a time, and then the deed was passed over to the Aversboro Battlefield Commission where they took care of the uh, little cemetery there. Well, let me ask you a question I sort of implied in the introduction, uh, which is for a lot of people, if, if uh, well, I'll say I, I moved here to North Carolina some, some four years ago, and I've really been struck by how much uh, there is in terms of, of battle sites, in terms of interest in the war. Uh, but most people, I, I would venture to say, imagine that the war in the East ends at Appomattox. Uh, ends with the Appomattox campaign. Uh, they vaguely are aware that Sherman went up and burned Charleston or Columbia or one of those South Carolina cities, can't remember which one, and something like that. Uh, and then there was a battle maybe at Wilmington. But other than that, the the war is over by spring of 1865. Why even bother uh, paying attention to this campaign here in North Carolina? Uh, Wade, I'll, I'll put that to you first. Well, I kind of look at it as, you know, North Carolina has always been kind of a backwater after Burnside's expedition in 62. Yes, there's some there's some major skirmishes, a few minor battles going on around Newburn and Plymouth, Little Washington, there, that area and such. Um, but, you know, late December, January 65, that all changes. Um, there's, there's a much broader strategic campaign going, and Sherman's Carolina's campaign was 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 pretty much in supporting effort of what Grant's doing in Virginia. Um, yes, the Army of Northern Virginia is pretty much the main objective to defeat Robert E. Lee, but the impact Sherman can have in the Carolinas um, impacts Lee's army greatly, especially logistically, um, psychologically, with those soldiers from the Carolinas that's working up, I mean, serving up in Virginia, and Sherman's down in uh, Carolinas doing all kinds of uh, mischief. Um, so by January 65, you just see a real increase of, mil- of Union military activity in North Carolina. Uh, at Wilmington at first, uh, now we've got 60,000 soldiers coming out of South Carolina up from Savannah. You've got the 23rd Corps coming in from Tennessee. Um, so now here, real quickly, you've got uh, almost 100,000 Union soldiers that's going to play a part in the, uh, like you say, the final, the final few minutes of the Civil War. So it really is a major, major campaign in terms of numbers. Oh, absolutely. Um, when you look at the amount of, uh, when you look at the, the 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 increase in the amount of Union soldiers, and what the effort the War Department from the Union side puts into the campaign, um, General Miggs, the Quartermaster General of the Army, is pretty much saying, "Hey, there's no more vessels out there for me to move anything. I've got over a hundred vessels supporting Sherman's campaign alone." Um, the railroad assets from Virginia, locomotives and rolling stock, were being shipped down to New Bern and Wilmington to uh, help uh, build that logistics base at Goldsboro, which is Sherman's objective. So that it becomes a, it's a, it covers the, all the levels of war from the tactical soldier level all the way to strategic with what uh, the War Department is doing to support Sherman. What about, uh, Mark, what about on the Confederate side? What, what kind of opposition can they put up to this massive effort? 
Oh, and that's and, and Wade he hit a lot of those key points on the the significance of the Carolinas campaign. And uh, the biggest one, as you brought up there, is the uh, impact on the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, you know, a lot of things are happening down there in Carolinas with the burning, the psychological impact on on Lee's troops around Petersburg. There, mass desertions from his army to go down and take care of their family, which hurts his army to fight Grant. Additionally, uh, Lee has to separate some of his own troops from there to go down there and try to slow this large Union army that's uh, now congregating in North Carolina. So the, uh, uh, for the Confederates, uh, their logistics base is now uh, being tampered with, uh, uh, whatever remaining supply they have coming from the sea and, and uh, whatever food they're getting out of the Carolinas is coming obviously through there. Um, as well as uh, now he's got to peel away his already dwindling army and send whole units down there. For example, Hoax Division has to go down there to help out their North Carolinians. And I, I think the impact, and people kind of miss that point, that you know they focus in on the Army of Northern Virginia and what Grant's doing, and they really miss the, the larger thing that's going on down in the Carolinas and the real true impact that it has on, the, uh, on what's going on in the Eastern Theater. It's, it's interesting. Today, uh, I believe, is what is it, January 19th, is Robert E. Lee's birthday. Uh, and I only know this because there was an ad in the paper in the local Greenville Daily Reflector this morning. Uh, a small ad had been purchased by the local Sons of Confederate Veterans saying, Happy Birthday, General Lee, then giving a small three-paragraph uh, summary of the war, uh, which I found notable for its mention of the numerous uh, black Native American and Hispanic soldiers in Lee's army, um, which would have shocked, I think, the first generation of Sons of Confederate veterans to read something like that. But in an attempt to appeal to modern sensibilities, that's what today's SCV seems to stress. Um, well, that aside, uh, the point is that here in North Carolina, it is Lee's army and Lee himself who is still the focal point even though, as, as you both point out, it was the operations in North Carolina that really determined how long Lee can stay put uh, outside of Richmond. Absolutely. Now, the, the, the Confederate opposition, you mentioned Hoax Division. Mark, you mentioned that Hoax Division was sent down uh, from the Army of Northern Virginia to help uh, fight Sherman. That's one division. Uh, Sherman has uh, almost an army group, you could call it, uh, two wings, each the size of a Confederate army. Or bigger, uh, what chance do the Confederates have of stopping this this juggernaut? Wow, that's uh, yeah, and that and that that is an important thing. Uh, uh, people often ask that, you know, on some of the tours that uh, Wade and I often give, why did they continue to resist and and peel away troops to stop something that's going to happen anyways? And uh, you know, that's a good question. Why people continue to uh, fight on when they know everything is lost, and I, I think it has to go deep down to home and uh, patriotism. And uh, it's 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 just remarkable that the uh, that they continue to fight on with uh, such ferocity that the Confederates did uh, in North Carolina. There. Well, yeah, I, I talked. I remember asking Mark Bradley a similar question when we discussed Battle of Bentonville, uh, same campaign, and. We, we got on the, the point of, of contingency, of, of unpredictability. We sit here and we know that there's no way you can stop Sherman. He's just got way too many troops and way too much of a logistical support system. But you might as well have said there's no way George Washington is going to defeat Cornwallis. Um, 
with that tiny army that he's got, uh, and yet he does. And, and the, from the Confederate point of view, they don't know the war is about to end. Uh, as far as they know, this is just a, a rough patch in the road. But but they're going they're going to eventually win. Is, yeah, that, is it possible to recreate that mindset? Is, is that, is that, do you see that, that that is what is in the minds of the Confederate soldiers? I, you, you, I think you hit it right on the head there. I, I don't think they ever felt they were going to lose. And, uh, I mean, when you have an attitude like that, and that's how it keeps you going every day, uh, you know, the, it, it's, it's what empowers them to do what they did. So they're willing to, to struggle against these long odds. Right. What exactly did the Confederates have in terms of resources? Well, uh, pretty much everything was, uh, you know, pretty much the only logistics base they really had left was in uh, Raleigh. Uh, they had a few set up uh, in uh, Kinston and New Bern fell. Uh, so things were starting to dwindle, loss of uh, Wilmington. And I know Wade probably can tell you more of the uh, critical logistics base in the rail lines uh, due to the fact that he wrote his thesis on that, uh, which greatly impacted uh, one of the main rail lines that was still left, uh, you know, while Lee was fighting uh, at Petersburg was the one coming up through North Carolina there. Uh, what about that way? Is that the, the last lifeline? Yes, uh, Mark's on it because when Sherman's Savannah campaign pretty much severed that link uh, to Georgia and uh, any link that would have been there in South Carolina, obviously as he's moving through, ripping up the railroads. So uh, the central North Carolina region uh, really becomes uh, important, basically from uh, Goldsboro over to probably Greensboro, Charlotte area, really becomes the uh, the last bit of, uh, if there's any place to find anything logistically to sustain an army, that's where it's going to be found. And that's, that's where Sherman is heading as he comes up the coast. Now, your book, uh, the full title is, is Sherman's Carolina's Campaign uh, from Fayetteville to Aversboro. Uh, or that's the full subtitle. So it, really the focus is on uh, not the march through South Carolina, which which is almost unopposed, but what happens when they when they cross the border into North Carolina. Um, right. What Mark and I tried to do is, because, you know, there's been some great historians that's done some excellent work on uh, uh, Sherman's operations in Carolina, Mark Bradley Hughes, Bennett Barrett, Glathar, um, but most, a lot of times, especially using Bradley, the, the focus was the Battle of Bentonville, and they're just trying to get the armies to Bentonville, and let's talk about the Battle of Bentonville. So normally there would be a mention on Aviesboro or Wise Fork. Um, so what Mark and I did was, was focus and expand upon that actions at Aviesboro, and also what's going on in Fayetteville prior to Sherman's uh, occupation, and, and particularly the, the Confederate arsenal there. Um, really, the initial chapter is just kind of setting the stage for someone who might not be uh, familiar with Sherman's Carolina's campaign. So we pretty much start in Savannah, but very quickly move through uh, South Carolina just to kind of give a, a general understanding. But the meat of the book basically deals from uh, what's going on prior to the occupation of Fayetteville up through Avesboro. Well, that's a good... Uh, well, now we've got that, that starting point. We're at a good point to take a break. When we come back, we'll, we'll talk about the campaign itself and how it unfolds and how, uh, in particular, uh, uh, the battle at Aversboro works out, as you describe it. We'll do that when we come back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio.
Confederate General William Hardy wrote the book on tactics and demonstrated it in the tactical masterpiece at the Battle of Aversboro, 1865. Join us when we talk with Mark Smith and Wade Sokolowski, authors of Sherman's Carolinas Campaign, Fayetteville to Aversboro, on Civil War Talk Radio. You got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website smallbusinesssuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small business success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. Smallbusinesssuccess.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. My guests today are Mark A. Smith and Wade Sokolowski, authors of No Such Army Since the Days of Julius Caesar, Sherman's Carolinas Campaign from Fayetteville to Aversboro. Well, in our first segment, we talked a little bit about the origins of Sherman's Carolinas Campaign and its importance and got Sherman's army up to the very borders of North Carolina, about to move in uh, on its way to link up with its uh, logistical support uh, coming eventually from Wilmington. Gentlemen, let, what was the Confederate plan uh, to stop this army as, as Sherman comes north? They have the, um, <clears throat> as, as Sherman's moving up through South Carolina, um, the, the Joe Johnston um, is brought back into command of overall forces there in North Carolina. Um, to include those that belong to the Department of North Carolina that's serving under Braxton Bragg. You have uh, Hardee's uh, Corps coming out of Charleston, um, and you have elements of the Army of Tennessee that's moving in at this time. Um, you also have local militias, the Junior Reserves and the uh, Senior Reserves as well. Um, Sherman's kind of got the Confederates kind of in a pickle play here. They're kind of off balance. Um, they're not quite sure where Sherman's heading. Um, Goldsboro, uh, if you're reading the newspapers and what's leaking out from the press, indications uh, might be uh, Goldsboro, and there's an increased activity on the coast that could probably tip that hat. But then there's also Raleigh. Um, so Sherman has pretty much Joe Johnston and what forces he does have kind of off balance, and he's, and he's forced to deal with with multiple Union threats from different directions. Sherman out of South Carolina. Wilmington has fallen. You've got Terry down there. And now Cox and Schofield coming over from Newburn. Um, it, it makes it very difficult, um, especially when you're outnumbered. 
on, on, on what do I do, where, where's the enemy ultimately heading, and where do I need to concentrate my forces. And, and Johnson knew he needed to do that. Any chance of success that he was going to have, he would have to um, pull together what forces he had mm-hmm. and then look for an opportunity where one of these Union commanders makes a mistake. Obviously, leaving a wing or a core of the Army um, not within supporting distance of one another, putting a major terrain feature between each other, those kind of things. And that's what that's what Joe Johnson's looking for. This is the only opportunity he really has. Now, Sherman's army is divided into uh, two wings. You, you talk a little bit about the, the the use of the wing formation. Most Civil War armies don't use that. Why was Sherman doing it? Well, uh, just to add in on that, uh, well, yeah. the wing formation is is pretty probably one of the most effective means of strategically maneuvering. And how Sherman tailored his wings was that he uh, developed each one of those into two separate fighting forces. They were able to fight independently without the other. And uh, what he used those for is to disperse the Confederates and having them move into a larger area with their greatly reduced number, that puts them always at a disadvantage for numbers. If, if they went to oppose either one wing or the other or tried to slow both down. So Sherman tried to use that to his advantage by further reducing the Confederate strength out there to even a more favorable condition for a fight if they chose to do that. And how he moved those wings was basically he never really told his commanders where they were going. Uh, each day he would give them their marching orders, and they would march anywhere from 17 to 22 miles a day, but he'd give them locations of where they would start to camp. So that's how he would communicate the direction there. Now, of course, as a fight broke out and one wing happened to come engaged, uh, they would communicate back with him via riders, uh, whatnot, and uh, then he would maneuver the second wing, the second uh, wing around to a position where he could move on to the flank of whatever force was there, and ultimately both flanks would, or both wings would fight that one group. So, and a lot of the other reasons for uh, for that type of wing formation was to split up the large number of troops. Uh, the roads in South Carolina and North Carolina were not that good. There weren't that many of them. So, he for congestion and not to tear up one road. Uh, he would split up his army and move in different routes. And the Army of Potomac used something very similar when they traveled from point A to point B. Uh, they sent them on different routes. But, uh, but Sherman pretty much moved them along uh, wider spans of area. Uh, and plus this was also very effective for him to use for foraging. And he couldn't have ar- a large army like that moving on one route. Uh, they would deplete the the first group would deplete the food for the second. So he had to spread his army out so they could forage on the countryside pretty liberally and bring in foods to support the army. So Sherman moves these two wings in with the Confederates looking for the opportunity to get between them or to catch them separated, isolated by terrain or weather or uh, lack of communication. And... Uh, uh, this doesn't happen at, at, at Fayetteville. There's no major battle there. Uh, well, as, as Wade, you'll, Wade can tell you more on, there was a, a, a little bit of a skirmish in the town, but uh, more importantly, the, uh, with the way Sherman set up his march coming out of Savannah, uh, the Confederates were pretty scattered. And once Johnston took over, as Wade brought up, uh, he had to consolidate his army somewhere. And the problem was that his troops could not move as fast as Sherman's army. They were well-trained at it as they did their march to the sea earlier. 
so his his problem was to get as quickly to one place, consolidate his army, and try to at least fight one of these wings at one time where he at least had a somewhat of a better numerical uh, advantage or disadvantage, so to speak, uh, uh, when fighting one of these wings. So I think Fayetteville uh, was one of the places where he could do that. And poor Hardy uh, was always left behind as a rear guard, but he was also in a race for his life to get to Fayetteville and get across the Cape Fear so he can complete what Johnston was originally trying to do, was consolidate his army and put him in a position where they can counter whatever way Sherman decided to go, whether he was going towards Goldsboro or making a move towards uh, Raleigh. Um, uh, uh, Wade, what about that? Is that uh... yes? Uh, you know, Mark's on it. The uh, with the with the Feder- with the Sherman coming through, um, there's really no opportunity uh, for the Confederates uh, um, west of Cape Fear due to, due to the numbers that you know Hardy had against sixty thousand, and then uh, what hooks bring up out of Wilmington. Uh, John, uh, uh, Wade, we're we're losing your voice a little bit. Okay. Oh, can you hear me now? That's much better. Yeah. Okay. Right. No, I think I think Mark answered that one pretty clearly, uh, Jerry. Um, you know, Johnson has to concentrate his forces. Um, what, well, Johnson is in command, um, but isn't Braxton Bragg there also making trouble? Well, Braxton Bragg. Obviously, there's that. Uh, if we go back, so you know, we go back in time during the Civil War. There's that uh, relationship uh, there, and when uh, Joe Johnston was uh, was appointed overall commander there, obviously. Um, there's a you know Bragg feels a little bit slighted by it, of course, um, but they, they wind up working it out. So you've got uh, Johnston pulling his forces back uh, as Sherman comes up along the coast and through uh, through central South Carolina into Fayetteville, North Carolina. Uh, there's, as you mentioned in your book, there are other Union forces along the coast in places like New Bern. Uh, that can move inland, uh, and in fact, there's a battle, uh, uh, Wise Fork, uh, which I cannot quite see out my window, but it's it's not too far from here, mm-hmm. uh, where not, uh, a Union force is trying to move in behind. I guess you'd say the the Confederate main army. Well, what 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 has happened here? You know, Sherman picked that spot on the map of Goldsboro as my future logistics base. And, and the key to bringing uh, such a large amount of uh, supplies to Goldsboro was the rail network. And uh, unfortunately for the, for the Union forces, it ran about maybe 10, 19 miles west of Newburn, and then it stopped around Batsford Creek area. And ever since uh, pretty much Foster's uh, expedition in 62, December 62, the railroad pretty much is, is kind of no man's land. Um, it had been either pulled up and used for uh, rolling of iron for the ironclads, or just in basic disarray. Um, Sherman knows that spot on the map, and he tells his logisticians, uh, his chief quartermaster, uh, General Easton, and this is where I want you to be. He knows the railroad is important, so he has W.W. Uh, Wright from the U.S. Military Railroads there in New Bern and Wilmington to help move that along. So, But in order to build that railroad, you know, Union, Union Army has to occupy that land. So the intent was to push out a lot sooner, but Palmer's a little bit slow moving out on Newburn. By late February, uh, Schofield pretty much uh, relieves Palmer of that duty as overall commander and sends up one of his able uh, able commanders, uh, Jacob Cox, who takes over. And that first week of March, Cox immediately puts that force in movement towards Kinston along that railroad. And as they move, Jerry, they're, they're occupying land and repairing the railroad all at the same time. Um, it's, it's kind of a, it's a race on a the timetable there. Um, 
go, Sherman's basically said, I'm going to be there around mid-March. Uh, meet me there. And they're behind schedule. Uh, and they're running into some difficulties with uh, lack of rolling stock, lack of wagons. And, and ultimately Bragg, who happens to be in that area, and with Hoke's division that came up along the, rim, the railroad out of Wilmington, um, sees an opportunity, and, and on March 8th, you have the first day of Wise Fork where uh, Bragg is very successful. Um, and Joe Johnston sees that success, and he reinforces success with now you have some of those lead elements of the Army of Tennessee that's coming in from Charlotte along the railroad. Um, those lead divisions, I'm talking a lot here now, <laughs> but uh, what, what reinforcements they are from the Army of Tennessee, they will arrive there by the evening of the 9th and uh, early morning on the 10th. And uh, once again, like I say, they'll fight from, the, from March 8th through March 10th. But unfortunately for Bragg, there's just too much forces coming in from Newburn. Uh, with Cox's Corps, and now you've got Terry moving up from Wilmington, um, coming up through Onslow County, elements of his well, and it's putting uh, threatening Bragg at Kinston on his right flank. And so ultimately Bragg will fall back towards the Goldsboro area once again. But uh, that was Bragg's attempt to kind of stop that. Um, but, but Sherman had to have that happen. If not, there would have been no railroad to build that log base he needed in Goldsboro. So the, it's, so the Union forces are building a, a railroad from the coast, from New Bern, inland. Well, the, ra- the roadbed is there. It's already there, but they're repairing it as they go. The old Atlantic and North Carolina Railroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, it's been in no man's land um, west of New Bern to Kenston for, for several years. And uh, it's, the condition's unknown. So, yes, they basically have to repair it. Well, I have driven between New Bern and Kenston and Greenville, with my daughters for their youth soccer teams, perhaps seven or eight hundred times in the last two years, uh, or at least it feels that way. And uh, next time I will do so with more appreciation for uh, for the Union forces pushing the, the railroad west uh, from New Bern or repairing it west from New Bern toward Kinston. As you probably recognize, as you travel west along Highway 7, that's some pretty swampy ground there. It is very low ground. That's a very interesting point. It, it's it's Well, all of eastern Carolina is... Average elevation is about 18 inches, I think. It's, it's as flat as a pancake. And when it rains a little bit, uh, a lot of places flood. Right. So this is a difficult uh, place to maneuver uh, a large army. Now, so Sherman continues to push the two wings up into North Carolina. Let's talk about what happens at, at Aversboro. This is one of the lesser known battles of the war. But you do a very interesting job of presenting uh, what happened there uh, with some excellent maps that show the, the deployment of the forces. Uh, when, when I was reading it, I was struck by uh, comparisons to, to Guilford Courthouse. Uh, I don't know if that's a, accurate or not. I don't know much about it, but on a surface level, the Confederate defense of preparing multiple lines and being prepared to fall back as needed uh, reminded me of that revolutionary battle. Yeah, the, pretty much the battle was tailed. Uh, I think you're referencing the cat battle of the Cowpens, uh, uh, and why you know a, a lot of the historians have referenced that. Uh, Mark Bradley did in in his book, and some of the other historians have referenced that. And and it's kind of true how he set it up there uh, with the fact that he had some regular army troops as well as he had some green militia troops and some siege artillery troops. So Hardy, uh, really, uh, Johnston and Hardy met in Fayetteville to discuss what they were going to do to try to create this opportunity uh, where Johnston could 
take on one of these wings uh, of Sherman's army and hopefully defeat it and then later on uh, consolidate his force again and try to attack the second wing, so which kind of came up with the plan of uh, Aversboro came into fruition there. And that's pretty much, uh, they pretty much did a map reconnaissance and picked the area near Aversboro for the simple reason that the Cape Fear River and the Black River came to their closest points there uh, in swampy area there. So he had a, uh, the, the area where Sherman's army could literally travel was greatly reduced. So that way he couldn't present the largest front that he could. So with the small force that Hardy had, which uh, varies anywhere from uh, as low as 6,000 troops up to about 8,000 troops, uh, we're going to counter uh, an army or a wing at least that comprised of probably around 22 to, to 30,000 troops, depending on uh, what he had engaged in the battle. So uh, at that point, it's Fayetteville where the decision really made to to uh, fight at Aversboro. And the bottom line of what Hardy's instructions were that he must number one ascertain which direction Sherman is going because he really wasn't sure whether it was Goldsboro or Raleigh. He kind of figured it was going to be Goldsboro based on some of the newspaper reports and some of the leaks, but uh, he wasn't really sure what Sherman would do. So at that point, that's one of Hardy's uh, submissions there is to uh, ascertain which direction and how many troops. But it's kind of interesting that uh, they tro- chose a deliberate defense uh, to ascertain that. He could have done that with his cavalry or a smaller uh, uh, you know, division or something that would slowly contest Sherman's advance, and they could pretty much report back uh, you know, where he was going and, and how many. But I think the, the bigger thing, and probably they discussed but never wrote down, was uh, Hardy, his job was to create an opportunity. And to do that, he would ha- need a large force his his small corps to delay one of these wings so that the other one couldn't mutually support the other. So I, I think that's why Aversboro came about. So Hardy deploys his forces there, and I think you're right about Cowpens as a, a better analogy. I was thinking of the multiple lines at Guilford Courthouse, but that was not done in the same way. Uh, Cowpens is a better comparison, uh, where the front line is intended to hold the enemy for a while, but uh, can retreat at will uh, onto a stronger position behind. The Well, one of the things about Aversboro that certainly stands out is the, uh, uh, the Colonel Rett getting himself uh, into a, a bit of a difficult spot early on. Uh, how did that happen? Now that's uh, probably one of the most interesting things of that whole battle, and I think everybody's more interested in that and actually what happened there. But it's uh, it's very interesting. Rhett uh, was not well loved by his troops. He was a strict disciplinarian. Uh, he often shot deserters on the march there. Uh, his men couldn't stand him. Uh, he was fairly competent leader, and uh, there's also an interesting story about him, how he came into command of that regiment. Uh, he actually fought a duel in 1862 with his commander as they insulted each other, and he actually killed his his regimental commander, and uh, he was second in command, and thus he became the commander of that regiment. So it was, it's kind of interesting how he got there. Wow. Uh, anyways, as he was uh, taking care of his lines, uh, he was uh, moving forward, and Sherman had a, a, a wily group of scouts that were uh, that were a part of his organization, and they were attached to the cavalry. And uh, Captain Theo Northrup was their commander, 
and uh, he was tasked to move up with the left wing with Kilpatrick's cavalry and ascertain uh, where the Confederate forces were. So somehow he had snuck uh, one evening behind the Confederate skirmish line, and he was checking out, found the main body of the Confederate first line there, and was heading back to report this when he ran into Rhett. And Rhett rode up because he thought it was Confederate cavalry, because the scouts often dressed in civilian clothing, and plus they were on muddy roads, so their uniforms were pretty dirty. And Redhead rode up to the group of scouts and, and asked them where the cavalry commander was, and they pretty much, uh, at that point, took him prisoner and escorted him back to Union lines. Well, he was not having a good day, clearly. No. Um, we're going to take another short break. We'll come back and talk more about the Battle of Edwardsboro and your analysis of it. We're talking today with Mark Smith and Wade Sokolowski, authors of Sherman's Carolina's Campaign from Fayetteville to Aversboro. We'll be right back on Civil War Talk Radio. You've come to the right place. Join us on Civil War Talk Radio. It's the one level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Apsio. Apsio's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Apsio, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.apsio.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Mark A. Smith and Wade Sokolowski, authors of No Such Army Since the Days of Julius Caesar, Sherman's Carolina's Campaign from Fayetteville to Aversboro. And we've just begun discussing what happened at Aversboro, a small but significant battle in 1865 as Sherman's army is advancing along the coast uh, and through the Carolinas into North Carolina. This was uh, a, a battle in which uh, the Confederate General Hardy is trying to delay a much larger force, uh, handicapped, as we just learned before the break, by the uh, the loss of one of his brigade commanders, uh, a Colonel Rett, who was captured by Union forces. I believe uh, Rett's replacement was a uh, general or Colonel Butler. That's correct. Um, so we have the Rett-Butler brigade here. There you go. <laughs> You've never heard that before, I bet. Um, the uh, Confederate Forces are, are holding, uh, as we read the story in your book here, for some time. But eventually, uh, the, the Union Army begins to outflank them. Did this once again involve those un- same Union scouts who captured Colonel Rhett? Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, and uh, as good scouts uh, do, uh, they're always looking for advantages. And uh, they'd happen to be 
uh, looking around and checking out the flanks of the Confederate first line, and they happened to find a weakness uh, through the swamps. And the weakness was that the Confederate line did not extend all the way into the swamp, and also they did not picket it very well. And uh, so the scouts knew this, and he, uh, Northrop left one of his men there to keep an eye on the Confederate line, make sure nothing changed. And he uh, went back and uh, informed his commanders of what was going on. And uh, the Union uh, commander at the time, Alpheus Williams, he uh, noticed an opportunity there, of course, and uh, ordered a brigade to move around onto the flank. Now, this is an interesting thing uh, that the Confederates left this swamp open uh, because of the fact that they've been dealing with Sherman uh, for a long period of time, uh, and his, his keen sense of flanking was always there, and why they assumed as he moved through the swamps of uh, South Carolina that a swamp uh, would stop him from maneuvering is, uh, is uh, sometimes questionable why they did that. And so whatever it was, for whatever reasoning, they did leave that flank open, and Case's brigade was assigned to move around to the flank. And uh, uh interesting thing about uh, some of the regiments in Case's brigade is that they were armed with the uh, seven-shot Spencer rifle, which uh, they could lay down quite a bit of fire. The firepower there was uh, pretty impressive. So not only uh, they had the firepower, probably equivalent of a, a probably two brigades or maybe even a small division uh, with just those rifles. Now, one of the things I really thought was interesting about the book is the uh, the critical analysis chapter that you provide. Uh, Wade, you use the uh, the the Army's uh, analytic framework uh, with an acronym that I don't know if you pronounce it or spell it out. Uh, o C O K A. Uh, what does that mean, and how does it apply here? Well, what that means is uh, the acronym stands for, we, we, we say the word OCOCA is how we pronounce it. Okay. Uh, the O meaning uh, observations and, and fields of fire. Um, if you look at it from Hardy's perspective at Aversboro, you know, did they have clear fields of fire? Um, was there a lot of woods in front of the uh, defensive lines that, would, uh, that limited their effective range of the rifles? Um, cover being the second one, uh, being cover or concealment. Um, you know, as we look at the defensive lines once again, they provided excellent cover and concealment because it really at no time could uh, you knew Sherman's men knew they were hitting the first line, but they couldn't see where the, sec- the subsequent lines in the defense were or how uh, Hardy had his forces uh, arrayed on the battlefield there. Let me ask you a question about yes. that. Um, the, the the maps show the Confederates set up in what looks like open ground in front of a, a, a tree line or wooded area, rather than in the woods themselves, which you think would give more concealment. Any idea why they do that? Well, if not, if you, you don't have to go too far to the left or the right. If, you, if you're Sherman's Army moving uh, north along that road, you don't have to go too far to the left or right before you hit some very swampy terrain mm-hmm. or uh, some very deep ravines out there. And that's where the uh, term O, the second O in Okoka, obstacles, which can be either natural or man-made, and... Uh, the battlefield at uh, at Aversboro has several uh, major natural obstacles. Um, you know, although uh, the the Union soldiers and Sherman and their uh, their great deeds were able to overcome that one on the uh, on the first line, even on the third line, as you read later on in the chapters, we talk about the uh, the fight at the ravine and how Sherman's uh, Vandeveer's brigade got caught down in there as they were coming out. Um, that's it. See, so we've got O C O and 
The next one, next one would be key terrain. Yes. Um, key terrain being, uh, is that a hilltop or uh, something like that? Um, but in the surrounding area around Aversboro, it's mostly flat, and it's you know, interrupted creek beds and swamps. Um, and Hardy mainly decided to put his, he used that terrain there, um, the flat terrain, which has the major obstacles natural to on his flanks. Uh, using the flat terrain, he's able to put a defense in depth of three three separate lines um, with some sort of sort of protection uh, on his flanks. And what this does is, uh, you know, he's numerically outnumbered, um, so it kind of helps channel the in- enemy as they approach. And that's what the final A in Okoka stands for, is avenues of approach. Now, there's one road there, the Raleigh and Fable Plank Road, that they're moving up on, and that's pretty much it. Now, uh, Norfolk did find a route, like uh, Mark explained, in regards to the first line. They were able to find a little opening there to move through. But by and large, to move a major army through that area, there was only one major avenue of approach, and that was the Plank Road. And Hardy put his three major lines of defense right on top of that road in depth with with major obstacles on its flanks as a means of, uh, of mitigating uh, his his uh, less numbers that he had to uh, defend against Sherman's approaching 14th and 20th course. So uh, so Hardy gets high grades in terms of, of measuring up to the, the Army standard here. Well, he, he used it very well. Um, that, as Mark pointed out earlier when we discussed in that area, uh, it's, it's a natural for defense, especially if you're outnumbered. Um, it channels the mil- it channels the advanced enemy down one major route. It gives you clear fields of fire. You've got some major obstacles, um, but the one thing is they kind of put a lot of uh, faith in those obstacles on on the flanks. And uh, unfortunately, they're going up against Sherman's men who are quite quite capable of overcoming obstacles. Um, if you look at the Sakahatchee Swamp, the Edisto Swamp, and all the rivers they crossed in South Carolina that was swollen. There's not much that slows them down. I mean, they're going, they're going to find an opening, and, uh, and Northrop provided that to Sherman on the first line. Well, let me ask you both a question uh, reading this. There are some very uh, colorful characters who, who command these armies. Um, who do you find the most interesting of the leaders? Uh, uh, Wade, uh, let me ask you that first. Um, geez. Well, you know, Hardy, um, I, I think this is, a, this is a feather in his cap, this action in Aversboro. I think he does a great job with what he has and what he's up against. Um, he picks the right terrain. Um, he takes some chance there. I think he pushes a little too close there with Sherman. If Sherman would have been a little bit more aggressive on that third line, it might have been a different outcome. And, oh, by the way, Wheeler shows up as well to help uh, to augment his forces some on his, his right flank. But I think Hardy does a great job. Uh, Mark, what about you? Well, I, I think the most colorful figure on the entire battlefield has to be uh, General Kilpatrick. Uh, uh-huh. Kilcav himself, uh, very aggressive commander, however, lacked a lot of common sense in a lot of cases. Uh, what we didn't really allude to is the uh, Army came into North Carolina, and there was a, a, uh, a pretty good-sized cavalry engagement uh, on what is now Fort Bragg called Monroe's Crossroads. As a matter of fact, uh, Eric Wittenberg uh, just published his book that just came out a few months ago on that battle. Uh, and Kilpatrick was pretty much surprised there and almost defeated. 
but to his credit, he rallied his troops and uh, regained the battlefield. Uh, right at that point, probably Sherman lost confidence in his cavalry commander, uh, and he continued to make mistakes. And as he moved on to the battlefield at uh, Aversboro, uh, he continued to make some mistakes. He would he questioned Kilpatrick a couple times or uh, Sherman a couple times on orders on how to tactically maneuver his force onto the flank, which irritated Sherman, and matter of fact, to the point where he says, you know how to do this, uh, and as he commented to his cavalry commander. And uh, I think uh, at that point, the confidence in Kilpatrick and his abilities as a leader uh, definitely waned at that point in the eyes of his commander, and uh, he was given lesser roles throughout the rest of the campaign. Uh, well, Kilpatrick certainly is a, a remarkable character, and, and worth reading about. I'll put in a, a vote for Alpheus Williams, uh, the the best uh, Union br- brigadier general never to get uh, the next star. No, well, that's old, true. Old, old Pat. <laughs> he, he never quite played the politics the right way. Correct. Um, we're running uh, near our end of time, but I want to ask you about what, what the area looks like today. You include a driving tour in the book, which makes it particularly useful for people who want to visit the area. What uh, what could somebody expect to see in, in that part of Carolina? Well, I, the the driving tour, tour would take you from Fayetteville, from the arsenal, um, along the march routes of Sherman um, as he approached Aversboro, uh, and then to the Battle of Aversboro and, and, and several stops on the battlefield itself. What, what could a visitor expect today? You know, one of the great things about Aversboro that I love is is that it's far enough off I it's close to I ninety five but far enough away from any kind of development, and and the battlefield's pretty much there. Three of the original plantation homes are still there. One was just recently uh, purchased by a, a private person moved moved across the road, but the, but three of the original homes are still there. Uh, one's occupied by private residents. Uh, the state just acquired uh, the first one right before we get to the first line. And then, like I say, the one uh, Oak Grove was just recently purchased. Um, but there's not a lot of development there. Um, and it's one of those grassroots organizations that we've got going in eastern North Carolina now, uh, Aversboro. It's, it's, not, it's not a state park. It's not a federal park. It's, uh, it's a lot of hard work uh, by, by a local grassroots uh, battlefield commission that's done a lot over here the last you know, 11 years or so in regards to uh, making progress and, and getting Aversboro on the map. Um, if a visitor went there, you, you, will, you will see where the first line was, the second line was, the third line was. The ravine is there. Those homes are there. And it, it's just a great place. And, and just plug a hole in for the whole area there. These grassroots, like over in Kinston, the Battle of Wise Fork, the commission over there is doing a lot. You know, a visitor to that area coming down I-95, you, you, you can see the Battle of Bentonville, uh, Fayetteville, the Museum of the Cape Fear there, which are all Bentonville and Cape Fear being state-run, but then uh, Wise Fork and, uh, and Aversboro being uh, private organizations. But a lot's going on there, and, and they really appreciate it when folks come by and, and, and help support the call. Well, that, that sounds good, and I recommend to our listeners uh, you get a copy of this book, No Such Army Since the Days of Julius Caesar. Uh, get a very interesting, uh, detailed, but analytical, not not just a by-the-numbers story, but uh, a very creative telling of what happened at this uh, small but interesting battle. And if you're ever in this area, take the driving tour. Go and, and see what they're doing there. So uh, what's next up for, for both of you? Any other any new Civil War projects on the, the burner? 
Well, uh, yeah, Wade and I are getting ready to write another book, actually. It's on the Carolina campaign again. Uh, but this time we're going to try to tackle Weiss's Fork right near where you're at. And uh, we're going to pretty much do this uh, very similar to the, uh, to the No Such Army book. Of course, uh, let the soldiers tell the story, do an analysis of the battle, and do a driving tour. Well, that sounds very, very appealing. And uh, we'll have to get together when you come down here and uh, next time walking the battlefield, uh, perhaps we can... You can take me out there and show me show me what's going on. Absolutely. Well, it has been a pleasure talking to you both. Uh, I enjoyed the book. I recommend it to our listeners, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to getting behind the wheel next time I'm driving to another soccer tournament somewhere. I'm going to sneak <laughs> away and uh, go look at some of these battlefields. So thank you both for uh, joining us on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you for having us. And listeners, thank you for listening. Civil War Talk Radio.